0: Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB One package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. Cambridgesavings.com/slash CSB One. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. If you stop Americans on the street and you ask them where all the jobs that we've lost to trade went, you're going to hear a couple names rise to the top. One of them is China. Which is absolutely right. Lots of things that used to be made in America are now made in China. But to lose sight of those jobs once they head to China, to assume that that's where they stay, is to miss the next part of the trade story. One Americans don't know a lot about, but one that will increasingly shape our lives, both because of economics and more immediately because of those jeans that you just bought. Irene Yuan Sun is an engagement manager at the consulting firm McKinsey & Company and the author of the forthcoming book, The Next Factory of the World, How Chinese Investment is Reshaping Africa. Irene, thanks for coming into the studio. Thanks for having me. So um, I mentioned jeans, um, but you say it's not just jeans. You've got Chinese and Taiwanese companies um, making like Reeboks, making uh, Levi's, making yoga pants that are sold at Kohl's. And those Chinese companies are not in China making those things. So you want to talk about, like, what's going on here that we're not seeing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. Actually, many of the things that Americans buy today at shopping malls are being made by Chinese companies not in China, but actually in Africa. So take the country of Lesotho, which is a tiny country that probably most Americans have never heard of. Uh, It's in southern Africa. It only has two million people. And yet it has has dozens of factories that produce clothing, apparel for Levi's, for Kohl's, for Walmart, all these brand names that we've heard of. And the owners of the factories are Chinese or Taiwanese, um, but all the workers are locals, uh, Southern Africans, locals from Lesotho. Hmm.
0: If you take a step back and you think, well, this is maybe interesting for China. This is maybe interesting for Africa because all these jobs are being created. But why does America care? Like, Do Americans really care if their yoga pants get made in China or Bangladesh or Lesotho or whatever? I would say two
1: things about why Americans should care. So, first of all, I think they should care. Um, Now, the two reasons for me would be one, America has been heavily involved, you know, as the leader of the free world, in trying to help Africa alleviate poverty, and become middle-income countries. And America has been engaged in that ever since independence for most African countries. It's been more than half a century. And I think we have to be really honest with ourselves and realize that a lot of the dogma of how America has tried to do this has not worked. And now there's this big new opportunity that Africa can industrialize and actually change the structure of its economies by using manufacturing investment from China. And so this is a historic opportunity towards a goal that America has been putting resources and energy and people in for a long time. The second reason that I think America should care is, you know, on the global arena, China is taking on this new interesting leadership position in the world. And China has unique things to offer. And I think Americans, you know, have this way of defaulting uh, into perceiving you know, issues with China as a zero sum game. And I think for the benefit of the world, it's helpful to start examining these these phenomena like this one, where China is actually playing a really unique, positive role that doesn't take anything away from the U.S. It's not like there are labor intensive factories that the U.S. could be outsourcing to Africa today. Right. And for the peace and security of the world, I think it's really helpful for Americans to to start recognizing these unique roles that China can play for our shared prosperity.
0: Can you give an example of an African worker you met whose life has been changed by a Chinese company coming to uh, Africa? Like, where do they work? What do they do? Has their life been changed?
1: Yeah. Um, One person that comes to mind is a man named Ahmed. Uh, He is a now- middle-aged man uh, from northern Nigeria, which is the poorest region of Nigeria. It's close to the area where we're hearing stories about Boko Haram today. And he, like many young Nigerian people, uh, didn't receive a very high-quality public education. And when he got out of school, he basically tried to find odd jobs on the street to make ends meet. Nothing very steady. The youth unemployment rate in Nigeria is extremely high. And one day he meets a man named Mr. Wong on the street. And Mr. Wong is this guy from China that had just arrived in Nigeria and wanted to set up his own factory. But Mr. Wong doesn't really speak English very well. So the two people are like, you know, sign-motioning as best they can on (laughs) the street. They don't speak any of the same languages. (laughs) Exactly. And Mr. Wong says he needs a driver. So Ahmed becomes his driver and starts doing odd jobs in addition to driving uh, as Mr. Wong's setting up his factory, which is a cardboard box factory. And one day... Mr. Wong decides he needs to buy a car. Now, the import duties in Nigeria for vehicle imports are very high. And so, what lots of people do is they go to Benin, which is the country next door, um, where the import tariffs are much lower, they buy a car there, and then they drive into Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem is Benin is French speaking Um, and Mr. Wong doesn't speak English all that well, much less French. And so Ahmed has to do it. But this is in the days before, you know, secure mobile money. And so Mr. Wong has to hand over the entire payment for the car in cash to Ahmed. And, you know, all his Chinese managers are standing around like this is insane. Like you're going (laughs) to give however many tens of thousands of dollars in cash to this man. He's just going to disappear. But Mr. Wong kind of takes a deep breath, hands over the money, and Ahmed comes back with the car. And so from that point on, Mr. Wong decides to teach everything he knows about running factories to Ahmed. And so when I went to this cardboard box factory in Nigeria a couple of years ago, Ahmed was running everything. He's the factory manager. And everybody reports to him. Mm -hmm. You know, there are even Chinese line managers who have to report to him, um, and some of them don't like it. But because of this job that he's worked his way into, he now has a real transferable skill set. He's highly valued. He's highly paid, um, particularly for someone of his education level. He's gotten to be able to get married, which men from his tribe need a certain amount of wealth to pay the bride price in order mm. to get married. And he's taken on not one but two wives. You know, polygamy is accepted in his marriage. So this is a rich man right, now. Right, right, right. And he's also brought his younger brother to work at the factory. He's brought many people from his village. And so his village is being transformed. By this one guy. This, yeah. By this one guy yeah. doing well at a factory.
0: Hmm. I'm Karen Miller. This is Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Irene Yuan Sun from the consulting firm McKinsey. She's the author of the forthcoming book, The Next Factory of the World How Chinese Investment is Reshaping Africa. It's interesting. You know, you have pointed out uh, this sort of paradigm shift that's going on about how, you know, America for a long time, and even now, I think largely, has thought of Africa as a place that receives aid, food aid and other kinds of aid. You know, a very poor place, has famines, not which is not untrue. But... Instead of thinking of it as a poor place, China thinks of it as a place of like potential huge investment, like huge riches. And it's sort of a turning on its head of the way that America has thought about Africa for many decades. How did China first come to think of Africa as a place where, again, like huge riches could be made?
1: Yeah, it's it's an interesting mindset Difference that you point out. And one of the reasons why I'm so fascinated by this phenomenon, which is that China sees in Africa what it itself was a generation ago. We have to remember, you know, I'm 31 now. When I was a kid in China, there were very few highways. Um, This was a country where meat was rationed, Uh, you got a coupon of how much meat you could buy. You know, this was a poor place. And China itself over the last generation has gone through the most remarkable poverty alleviation record that any country in the history of the world has. And it's done that on the back of attracting foreign investment, attracting business and getting businesses to grow. And so I think there is a core Belief that the poor places in the world can do this. Mm -hmm. And it's not a theoretical belief, it's a very practical belief. I hear the refrain a lot from Chinese entrepreneurs that I meet in Africa that, oh, this, you know, Ethiopia or Nigeria or Lesotho, wherever they happen to be standing as they're talking to me. This is just like my hometown. Really, thirty years ago. Interesting, and that is a powerful, powerful belief. That's good for Chinese entrepreneurship, but also good for Africa. I think. So um,
0: we've talked a lot about the upsides for Africa, the upsides for China. Um, Talk a little bit about what are there downsides for Africa that, you know, Chinese companies move in and obviously to some degree, for good or bad, change the economic order, maybe change the social order. Like, what are the downsides here?
1: Yeah, there are downsides. Um, And industrialization is not an easy process. It wasn't easy when it happened in China. Um, there's major environmental degradation, for example, that China is experiencing today because of the way that industrialization mm-hmm. was done. And if you go back to, for example, when the U.S. industrialized, there were huge corruption scandals. I mean, that era of American history is is just scandal-ridden. Um, in the U.K. as well, the first country to industrialize, I mean, there's all these stories of London being filled with soot. And so this yeah, is I mean, not... People would come,
0: I, I, I remember stories, people would come home at the end of the day And they had to change clothes because the white clothes they had were now brown from a day out, just one day. I mean, that was just how messed up the air was. Exactly.
1: Exactly. So, you know, there are real downsides to industrialization, to the environment and oftentimes to labor. Um, because oftentimes labor unions um, and the protections that we have for workers in a society are playing catch up with how quickly businesses are investing and in mm-hmm. new forms of aggressive new investment are coming in. And you see that in Africa today. And so, for example, I uh, traced the story of a worker named Kenneth Frederick who died on the job. He was electrocuted to death at a Chinese factory in Nigeria. And I basically went and tried. Tried to talk to everybody who knew anything about this. The short answer is no one knows what happened truly and whose fault it was. The company says that Kenneth had basically disregarded some of their safety regulations and that was the primary cause of death. The worker rights agency uh, organization thought that it was because the company um, didn't provide enough training and safety equipment that he died. And no one can really adjudicate what exactly happened because the systems for protecting workers and making sure that all these regulations we now have in a industrialized countries. Those systems aren't yet in place in Nigeria. And so these tragedies happen and those systems still need to be built.
0: So give me a sense of um, where this goes from here. And if you, you know, if you were to check back in 20 years down the road, what do you think, like, what do you see happening if you kind of extrapolate out from the patterns that you've seen so far?
1: Yeah. So I think in another generation, there is a version of the world where most African countries are middle-income countries, mm. and they are producing goods for everywhere in the world. So they're plugged into global value chains that produce the the products, the tangible products that we all buy, and that increasingly there are African entrepreneurs who are setting up their own factories that are world-class. So the same sorts of people that we see who are Chinese today, who have built up enough capital, enough expertise to be running world-class businesses, I think those same African workers entering Chinese factories in Africa today can, with 10 or 20 years of experience, be working for themselves, being their own bosses in really world-class firms.
0: Irene yuen is author of the new book, The Next Factory of the World. Irene, thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. If you're wondering, by the way, what percentage of Chinese manufacturing businesses have moved to Africa, Sun estimates that it's still only around 5%. And she says that the concerns that exist here about manufacturing moving to other countries and leaving our workers behind... Those concerns don't exist nearly as much in China. That's because for the past 40 years, the one child policy has turned China into an inverted population pyramid. Lots of old people, not a lot of young people. So the goal in China is to outsource or automate as many manufacturing jobs as possible.